Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. My name is Stacy Brightman, and I am the Vice President for LA Opera's Connects, which is the division for LA Opera that is all about community engagement and learning. I was really excited because some folks don't realize that amongst our different artists and leaders at LA Opera, we have this incredible cadre of young youth leaders. And so I thought it would be interesting today to have a conversation with a couple of outstanding in the field leaders. First of all, we have Marissa Dawson, who is a 17-year-old here in Los Angeles, and she is an incoming freshman at Pepperdine University. Her love affair with opera started when she was seven and has since evolved into her continued leadership within LA Opera Connects. And we'll talk a little bit about what shape your, uh, your leadership has taken. And we also have with us Christopher Gutierrez, a 16-year-old senior at Villanova Preparatory School in Ojai, California. He is also an L.A. native, a lover of opera, literature, and late antique history. Christopher is an ambassador to L.A. Opera's 90012 program, and he founded his school's Art History and Opera Appreciation Club and is currently serving as a member of his school's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. And I have as my third wonderful guest, Clements Yee. Clements Yee is currently a senior at Troy High School in Orange County. He has been an ambassador for LA Opera's 90012 program since 2014 and is currently co-chair and representative to the National Opera Teens Advisory Committee. He enjoys opera with a passion and is always thrilled to watch a new production. Well, hey, my friends, thank you so much for being with us today. First of all, let's do a lightning round. Tell me about your first encounter with opera. Of course, and thank you again for having me. My first opera was Tosca, and I was brought in with my uh, class from school. And we were, I, I watched it, and it, we came to Eluce van der Stelle, you know, the, the famous uh, tenor oh, aria. Yeah. And I found myself crying for the first time, you know, at, in a, at a live performance ever. And it was a super special experience. and and having those subtitles up there was just spectacular. But but that was certainly my moment on the road to Damascus. And it was just absolutely, you know, transformative in a lot of ways. I was like, I was seven, as you heard in my bio. Um, my mother had taken me, she was like, okay, we're gonna do this. We're gonna see if you like it. And then we'll go from there. I had really the same kind of experience. It was the first time I had cried at a live performance. Very surprising. Clements, what happened with you? So as is uh, said in my bio, um, I started uh, watching opera at the age of five. Unfortunately, my first opera was not live. It was on a DVD. But that really started to generate my interest in opera. And a year or two later, my parents brought me to LA Opera and I watched The, um, the Barber of Seville. And um, somehow, I don't know how, my parents managed to get me backstage to meet the cast. And uh, wow. I was so stoked about that. So from that point forward, my parents tried to get live tickets to operas. But when they couldn't, they uh, bought uh, discs and we just watched them practically every Friday night. I love it. I love it. All three of you came in through kind of different doorways. And by that, I mean, you actually came in through different programs, um, access points, Clements, you mentioned, you know, going to a live performance, but also opera camp, right? Which, which, which is this kind of summer intensive where kids 
learn about opera by doing an opera with us. Marissa, you mentioned coming in person, but then also getting involved, particularly with the 90012 program. Do you mind telling what the 90012 program is? It's 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 kind of uh, pretty amazing, I, I think. I you know, but I'm, Most I'm biased. Definitely, so. just you're just a little bit biased. Um, <laughs> but the 90012 program, which I act as the lead chair on, along with Clemens, um, is a program that we open to uh, all high schoolers. Uh, we've actually expanded it to middle and high schoolers, if I'm not mistaken, who have the opportunity to apply. They tell us why they're interested in opera, even if they have the smallest interest in it. And we are able to provide them a uh, small mini subscription to C4 operas throughout the season. And they're able to come and experience it with a group of like-minded teens and they're able to have a good time. Thank you. Very nicely done. And then Christopher, you mentioned coming with your school. I'm going to come back to that because my next question, and and this, let me throw it to you, Christopher, for this is, um, so how do you, as young lovers of opera, but how, how do you explore opera or engage with it when you're away from the opera house? And obviously, you know, I, I, let me even extend that question and say a little bit, you know, before COVID and, and since COVID, um, how are you getting your opera fix? How are, you know, and, and I ask this for, for all thinking about all of our listeners, you know, what's your best tips? What's something that, you know, what, what lessons might they learn from your experience? Yeah, certainly. I, my experience with opera has been one of extreme self-interest and self-study. So I began by um, going online and just reading through the Wikipedia pages of a bunch of these operas um, because there's a lot to, be known from the history of opera itself and then the history of each individual opera, which is so interesting and fascinating, which I was just um, captured by. And uh, my school, I, I live in Boyle Heights, Kip LA Prep. Uh, they, we were able to be brought to this opera. You know, not everyone was interested, but those few students who you do get and are hooked for life, that's, I think that's what the amazing part of, of these kinds of programs are. At my school now that I've fallen in love with opera, I, I founded an art history and opera appreciation club where I teach about opera and um, art in general. But I mentioned earlier that I had um, through the community circle program at LA Opera, I was, I was able to bring a group of students from my club to see Roberto Devereaux. And a lot of them were absolutely blown away by it. And I had prepared them by putting into my lesson plan for two weeks, opera history, you know, ranging from the Florentine Camaretta all the way to, you know, Philip Glass, they they really liked it, and which surprised me because you know uh, that's I think that's a huge misconception. You know that young students won't have that proclivity for opera, and I think that's wrong. I think that exposing anyone to anything that's that's a great thing about our generation. They they like to dabble in things. I don't think it's necessarily cut off as of yet. Before COVID, again, I could do these kinds of things because we were in person. But since COVID, I've been able to uh, recommend to my students and, and fellow club members the Met online free operas every night yeah, that they they're do. Great. And they're awesome. And um, again, just keeping po- posting a bunch of things on my Google Classroom page, links and stuff for them to, to continue to read up on it. I hardly have people to discuss it with now that I'm home. So I I should get onto hosting Zoom meetings or something for my my club, but just that's generally how I've explored opera through self interest and then spreading that out into my community and the people who I'm surrounded by. That's astonishing. <laughs> I 
<laughs> you, I'm, I'm so just thrilled. And yeah, you know, I think you just had a great idea that was sort of born there that maybe it's something we should all be pursuing together. You know, maybe that's something the ambassadors can be hosting more of these kinds of conversations, even though for, you know, for the fall, we, we probably are not going to be able to be together at the opera house, you know, for, for safety's sake. You all are inspiring me. And again, you're, I, I can see you already, the three of you taking the lead for this next generation of how do we we keep this kind of love and fire going. This is a silly question, but I always like it. And we it's it's funny how often this actually comes up at, you know, whatever dinner parties or, you know, hanging out. So what are the three operas that you're gonna take to a desert island? Let me throw it to you first, Marissa. Well, I know my top two are most definitely um, The Tales of Hoffman. I think that was actually my favorite production in the past few seasons for, for LA Opera. Just my personal opinion. Second, uh, La Traviata. Obviously, you know, it is a classic. For a third, I mean, it's really, it's a toss-up between the Figaro operas. You have oh, multiple yeah. You can choose. You can see what your preference <laughs> is. You don't. You can choose one, and then you can go from there. Everyone has a different opinion. I'm. I'm mixed. I'm mixed between them. So they can throw one in there, and I'll be fine. <laughs> I think you. I think you deserve to take the whole trilogy if you want to. You should take all of the Figaro <laughs> operas if you want to. I can count it as one. There you I go. Can just count it as one. That's it. That's awesome. Uh, Clemens, what would you take with you to the desert island or what do you recommend to somebody else who, you know, you really want to hook them with opera? What's the opera you might recommend to them? I would definitely think about La Traviata. That is certainly an opera that everyone must watch. No questions asked. If you don't watch it, you're not an opera fan. Um, Ooh, throw down. <laughs> I said watch. You don't have to like it, but you have to watch it. Okay. And then, um, also, one of my personal favorites is uh, Elisir d'Amour. Uh, by Donizetti. Um, that is one opera that I have rewatched over and over and over again. And um, like Marissa, the uh, the Figaro operas—they're uh, definitely a classic, and I just love those. Wow! And I love you. You, you both have already surprised me so much. I guess um, you know what? Let me ask Christopher the same question, and then I, I, I'm I'm going to have to do a little follow up question. Uh, Christopher, what what are you going to take with you to the desert island, and or recommend to somebody else? Well, for my recommendations, and I and I and I recommended these exact three. I, I call them the trinity of you know approachable operas: uh, Bohème, Traviata, and Tosca. Those are your yeah. approachable fall in love with operas um, that I recommend to my friends or to my teachers who know that I like opera and say, "Oh, how can I how can I join?" But my personal favorites that I couldn't live without, uh, Tannhäuser, Don Carlos, and Otello. Uh, Otello is my favorite opera. It's just for its sheer epicness, the, the beautiful, uh, the lines that are, are sung, you, you need a real um, excellent tenor for it. And uh, those are my three favorite that I, I wouldn't be able to survive COVID Island without. Gosh, you guys inspire me. What is, Traviata showed up on each of your lists in some way. What is it about Traviata that speaks to you? First of all, uh, La Traviata was written by one of the greatest opera masters in history, Verdi. The historical standpoint of it, it's important to note the uh, that kind of mistresses of the of the time were kind of looked upon, and, and across all time they are looked down upon. But kind of to see the different layers of social status and and wealth that people have to struggle through in order to survive, uh, it is truly heartbreaking to see. Um, 
to see someone just go from the top of echelon of society and then die a penniless soul. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, not only that, the, 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 the sheer beauty of the music and mm. uh, the brilliance of Verdi is truly shown through this opera. Yeah. Christopher is nodding his head. Absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's, he's right there with you. Any other thoughts, Marissa or Christopher, about what what is it about Traviata that you think is so I, pierces through? I I personally enjoy it just because um, Verdi really focused on human emotion, just incorporating human emotion within all of his work, and then especially with La Traviata, he was writing work for his time. He wasn't writing it for another time or for the future. He was writing it for his time. As Clements was saying, just the representation of social status and, you know, the struggle of survival, even it's something that most modern composers and even, you know, those of the time could hope to match. Yeah. Beautiful. I had some thoughts on, on Traviata too. You know, it's, it's his middle, it's one of his middle period operas. So he's at the height of his powers before he kind of comes down and shocks the world with Falstaff and, and Don Carlos and Aida and such. But the two pillars of Traviata for me, it's the story of sacrifice, what Violetta has to give up, right? It's the story of sacrifice. And it's also the story of transformation. In terms of sacrifice, one of my favorite um, psychologists, he says, you know, everyone, everyone has to make a sacrifice in this world. You don't get to, you don't get to choose whether or not you have a sacrifice or not, but you do get to choose what it is. And she mm. chose to give up her love for, for Alfredo. Al- Alfredo, yeah. The story of transformation is, well, vocally in act one, she's, you know, seeing coloratura crazy, you know, sempre libre, mm-hmm. yeah, and in that aria. And then you get to the second act and there's this lovely music with Germain and, and yeah. their duets are just absolutely piercing for the heart. And then finally, you get to this, this very sad, melancholy, all these R's that just completely strike you. And it takes an excellent soprano for that. And oh, I yeah. think there's something about following someone along a journey, be it musical, be it emotional, that you can trace it along and see, you know, she did move through these, you know, these economic challenges. She did move through the social challenges of, you know, being humiliated in front of in that party. But more than anything, it's that it's that transformation that you can follow her along and say, you know, I could have been in that position and I could have fallen like her. So yeah. sacrifice and transformation, absolutely remarkable traits of La Traviata. Well, your insights, the three of you are remarkable. I think you, you all need to be teaching a seminar on this. I'll add to what you're saying. I think Traviata is a different opera at every point in your life. You know, I the last time I saw it, I was, you know, and I love it too, for all the music, for the transformation from the the inversion of that the low this woman who is a courtesan and you know and and is in fact our heroine and she is the most magnificent soul and the soul that magnifies the rest of us but also you know the last time i saw it i thought oh my goodness this whole piece is about children and and children and parents and what you know and, and is the sacrifice i mean the sacrifice is really for germain right it's for that family and for that parent and it's just it's it's an it is an astonishing work that keeps becoming a different opera wherever you are. I think in your life. Okay, enough on Traviata. I just couldn't help myself on that one. I want to go to a hard question, and it's a, it's a question that we're 
the world is the, the world of opera is grappling with. And it's a great thing that opera is grappling with this and trying to be better, be a better art form. You know, what, what are the stereotypes of opera in your mind? And I, you know, and that's a really big question. It could be stereotypes in terms of texts. It could be stereotypes and characters. It could be stereotypes in terms of the way uh, shows are produced. Um, it, it can certainly be a stereotype, I think, in the way opera is perceived and even sometimes reviewed. How, how do you think about or grapple with the stereotypes of opera? Um, that's a really big question. Anybody want to try and tackle that one? Well, there are certainly many stereotypes of opera that I've seen around my school. Um, the first of which, and this is actually something I've seen everywhere, is that opera is perceived as kind of, if you say opera, people are like, oh, you mean that thing where, where like this fat singer is just singing a high note in vibrato. No, they don't describe it that way. But um, that is the most common perception of opera. And yes, there is a lot of singers that do perform vibrato on kind of higher notes, but it's totally not true that they're fat. <laughs> uh, that's just wrong and rude at the same time. I think it's more for the peace of mind and the beauty that comes through the singing and the music because every single interpretation of an opera has a different way and a different uh, staging, but the music and the way it was written stays constant throughout the whole time that it was ever. Okay. Before. Well, you know what? I think I've just discussed, I think you're kind of old school there, Clements. You're kind of a, that, I think that actually is. And you, you just really touched on, on a way that opera has very much changed even in the last 20 years, um, because there are a lot of folks like you who, and you are a musician too. I think we didn't yeah. say that, but you know, you're, you know, who really think it's about the music is all. And it's about the be most beautiful delivery of the music. And then that's the that's the power, that's the superpower of opera. And that some of those stereotypes you, you, you think, okay, in terms of performance or production, maybe there's some, there's some validity there. We can do better. We can, we can bust some stereotypes there. Uh, let me go to Christopher. What do you, what, you know, how do you grapple with stereotypes that you see in opera or that are per you know, perceived in opera? Right, uh, and I'll and I'll answer that. But I just had to know. I had to wonder. I wanted to respond to what Clement said. I, I think that a lot of those stereotypes that come about or seem to come about because of, you know, like like you said, the the people thinking about just the high the high the woman in the Wagnerian horns who's larger, you know, you know, singing that high note. Those things have come about, you know, through the media. A lot of it has, you know, it is a, a perception problem. But I think it's uh, fundamentally. It's an issue of perceiving opera as parts. You know, opera, the word we know means work, right? From, yeah. you know, opus, work. It's a, it's a work of art. It's a piece in its totality. I think it, it ought to be thought of as one cohesive thing. And that's the thing that James Conlon likes to talk about, that it is every single component of performance art at the highest level you know, with the highest intensity often, right? And so I think if we continue to think of opera as parts, as strictly the musical singing, strictly the libretto, strictly the staging of it, because people are going to continue to fight about staging and, you know, what's too modern and what's too um, epic and, and Paris opera house, um, epic style, uh, grand opera. Uh, so I think we need to, the way that opera needs to be taught now 
to start resolving and tackling a lot of these stereotypes is as one cohesive piece of of art, right? It's it you don't yeah. you don't you, we go to musical theater because we like to hear the the funny songs or the 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 power ballads, a lot of these things. It'll be easier to to grapple these stereotypes if we begin to think of opera wholly. Yeah, that makes sense. A gesamtkunstwerk, you know, a, a, a total artwork, a unified piece. I, I, right. I hear what you're saying. That's beautifully put. And I think a lot of the stereotypes. I think Clement hit them right there. I think that's the main stereotype that opera gets. Some people speak to the idea that opera is too embellished. Like we hear the the flower duet from Lachme, right? And, you know, they're just singing about flowers and they're singing it so beautifully and, and so profoundly. And so for some people, that can be quite annoying. They're like, just, just say you're going to pick up the spoon instead of <laughs> singing it, you know, in, in a in a 14 minute aria. Uh, so that can be difficult to tackle. But I think that's just embedded in the art form. And so I, I wouldn't even want to tackle that that stereotype. There's going to be elements of art, performance art that many people are not going to like. And I think that the way you go about it is through profound education and an education that is well planned. Because if you're putting the wrong ideas into people, whether that be by means of media or by means of opera houses that promote stupidly, then you're going to get bad perceptions. But if we continue to keep working in the direction that LA Opera is working, you're going to get um, educated students and lesser and lesser of these illusory correlations that are just absolutely wrong about opera. Wow. Thank you. And, you know, Marissa, I want to bring, I, I want to hear your ideas on this too. And, and let me throw another aspect to it too, which is I know all three of you are deeply committed to um, justice. I know that you're, you, you are each of you deeply committed to inclusion and representation uh, in all fields of the world, but certainly because you both, all three of you love opera. Uh, I know that this, these are conversations that I've had with, with you uh, separately thoughts about that or the stereotypes or, you know, Marissa, do you want to, you know, kind of comment on that? For sure. I think opera as an art form traditionally has been discussed as sort of a gatekept art form in both regards to accessibility and also representation within staff, within us, within, you know, performers, within artists, within uh, orchestras, with composers, with uh, conductors. And it is something that has presented itself as not just a stereotype, but as something that has been proven. And, you know, in terms of monetary accessibility, there has been an improvement with, within uh, companies in regards to being able to reach out to the community and having programs where access to opera is not something that is as difficult or perceived as difficult as being as difficult as it once was. But I think the stereotype that does hold the most weight in truth is that of representation and diversity. I think it is always something that has to be regarded. Uh, I know that there are always young artist programs and there are always programs that are seeking new art, that are seeking new artists, seeking new talent, seeking something fresh, something that typically hasn't been seen within a company and something that typically hasn't been seen within companies are people of color. And it's something that I believe that has to be universally worked on. However, in regards to other stereotypes, such as what opera is, 
the art form itself. Mm-hmm. The stereotypes such as, you know, it being a specific, as Christopher and Clements were saying, you know, a, ser- a singer singing an aria for 14 minutes about picking flowers or picking yeah. a sp- or picking up a spoon. It's not just that. It is something that just like with any other art form you have, just like you have with other types of music, just like you have in film, just like you have in art, there are discussions and messages to be had about things that have been made hundreds of years ago or even a year ago because the art form as a whole stands for speaking for what you believe in and regardless of the opera that you look at there is always something to be gleaned from it there is always something to be learned you can walk into an opera and walk out completely confused by what you just saw but then you'll think about it and you might just learn one thing or you might be able to reflect and figure out oh this is what that was trying to say or oh maybe I should think about this a little bit more deeply or maybe even a bit differently so I think that perceptions in opera can be should be changing in regards to messaging but in regards to the people that are within it there should always be room for growth the more people we have in this art form, the better the art form it will be. The more diverse our, the, I think the more diverse our creators are, our audiences are, it's, it'll be a richer uh, religion for all of us. Exactly. I, I think. I think. Um, thank and, you. And, and just in regards to that, you would, you'll be able to bring in more people. Absolutely. If people know that there's always, if people know that there's something new, they'll see, oh, what's this? And they'll walk in and see. Yeah. And feel welcomed and feel seen. Right. And we do, we have a, what we're experiencing and, and even conversations like this uh, really help me, you know, help, help somebody who's been in opera just about as long as you guys have been alive. I'm learning so much in this moment with all of you. And in fact, I cannot believe the time is flying, but I'm going to sort of go to my last big question, which is, in the way that you've inspired me today, and and I think people who will be listening in, when I look when I look and speak with the three of you, I think, well, I am looking at the future of opera. I am absolutely looking at my future bosses. I'm absolutely looking at the future creators, the f- the future board members. What's your future with opera? Do you think you know a, a little bit of a creative, imaginative leap? What do you want your future to be with opera and what will be the future of opera that you help make? Well, one thing for sure, um, I want to be able to uh, help sponsor the arts because I think that opera is an art form that should live for all eternity. Amen to that. Um, (laughs) Amen. um, Another thing is um, I really wish to inspire community engagement in opera because that is just something that is sorely, sorely lacking and something that I really, really uh, am sad about not seeing in my friends at school or even just friends anywhere. I think that if I just help people get engaged with opera from tiny kids to teenagers to young adults to older adults, then we can truly make opera a more impactful art form. Thank you. Beautifully said. Marissa? Just to shake up the order a little bit here. Okay, new order. You you had to lay it on heavy with the last question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> ah, just out here 
I had to reflect on that a little bit. Um, Because, you know, I'm going to college. I'm going to be in a completely new space. I'm pursuing what I want to pursue in life. And that is marketing and business. So it's a little bit integrated marketing communications. But um, my hope and my minor is actually nonprofit management. And my hope really in what I'm attempting to do is to actually try and come back to opera with my knowledge, not just for, you know, for community engagement and the focus in community engagement and a focus in, you know, giving my knowledge to able to help companies know their demographics, know what they can do to reach out, be able to create more inclusive programming to create a more diverse and inclusive audience. And I think the opera, the opera world that I want to be able to come back to or even just continue to be in is one that is not resistant to change. Mm-hmm. Because I think a little bit of a common theme in some opera companies that I've seen, especially in um, seasons, sometimes mm-hmm. occasionally, is there is very much so... Um, a love of traditionalism. Sure. There yeah. is, oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. You know, there is obviously, especially especially with off-grand, you know, there is always room for new and different ideas and new and different productions, composers and things. But I think a more open mind to change within administration within performance within every single aspect of a company is something that can be universally applied and Mm -hmm. that's something that I hope to see that's thrilling and I love the way you have really kind of hit that it's it's kind of an education for both the companies and our audiences that we Mm -hmm. kind of need to go on that journey together it's a symbiotic relationship we opera doesn't exist without listeners and you know Listeners sometimes can't exist without opera. It just depends. I love it's it. Some, it's something that people love and the, and the art form loves its people. Yeah, I love, well, beautifully spoken. Christopher, what do you think? Well, in terms of my future with opera, um, I'm not too sure where I'm going with it, but my career choices, I'd like to be uh, a professor or a psychologist or both. So I'm not too sure where I'm headed with it, but yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking about my future with opera. But in terms of what's been discussed today, I think it's absolutely beautiful and absolutely relevant. Opera is an evolving art form. And I think re-evaluation and discussions, uncomfortable discussions, are extremely important. I think it's also important to note that we, we take a historical approach at this. If we, again, going back to the Florentine Camerata, what was the purpose of beginning opera back then? It was to re-revivify the Greek tragedy and Greek performances of these epic tragedy writers. And so what opera did then was create this huge cathartic experience, which they could release, you know, just like in ancient Greece, that could be experienced by all. So I think in this divided world that we're living in, we need something approximating a, a low-resolution grand narrative to unite us. And the only way we're going to do that is by changing the stories that we tell or, or somehow embellishing them, reevaluating them. 
and recognizing the political importance of a lot of these stories. And we look at, uh, you know, Nabucco, right? We, we know the political importance that it had for the Italian people, right? Uh, and, but, and we can write operas like that for, for our society today. We have wonderful writers and composers like Matthew O'Coyne. These people need to carry on the torch, uh, including us, right? And, and continue to have these discussions and reevaluate the place of people within opera and how we can bring out that cathartic experience once more through making this art form whole again. Well, amen. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. And I feel honored that I think we will be all part of that movement together. I'm, I'm honored to be part of that commitment to making it a whole art form that welcomes all people and that represents all people and leads us future with the catharsis and the healing that we need. My friends, what an extraordinary conversation. I, I thank you. In this particular moment, we can't be together in the same room, but goodness gracious, when we can be, I, I, I look forward to welcoming you and with live, gorgeous performances and beauty and joy and big hugs. So. Thank you, dear friends. Have a good afternoon. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.